Welcome to the Imperfectly Perfect Campaign, sharing real-life stories from real people to unite them in global change for the face of mental health. We will also reduce the stigma, creating communication, healing, and awareness to save lives and inspire. Join us weekly as we talk to some of the highly acclaimed faces, influencers, experts, and others who have been through extreme adversity. Hey guys, so welcome to another episode of the Imperfectly Perfect podcast. And today we have got an author, NLP practitioner, an executive coach who works with some of the top C-suite executives and the life coach for many well-known influencers today. He's a neurohacker sharing what he calls demo, a combination of basic neuroscience, behavioral coaching, NLP, and emotional intelligence, pivoting the subconscious stories, transforming thoughts that inhibit change. He comes from a racially charged and dysfunctional childhood. His past includes the the making and being of a Hollywood talent agent to celebrity kickboxing instructor to corporate consultant. Within these years, he has also battled depression, suicidal, and a host of experiences that eventually drove him into the science of human nature and what he says saved his life. His ultimate goal is to inspire people to take a street smart approach to pivot their lives and change for the better. Now, before I do introduce this guy, he's an amazing man. There's so many golden nuggets that I've taken away and learned from him and lucky enough to um, get to know him and call him a friend and uh, pretty much unbeknownst to him, become a mentor for myself as well, just some of the things he comes with. But he's got an amazing story and he's part of the Imperfectly Perfect campaign, guys. And today I would like to introduce Julian Sardo. How are you going, Julian? Hey, Glenn. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, thank you. So thank you, first of all, for your time. I know a lot about you. Brief bio on yourself, but why don't we, as I always do, take it from the start? From my birth? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> From your birth, the day that you was born, mate. No, so let, let's take it. Obviously, you've had a varied career and, and obviously gone through your own adversity, attesting to the campaign, obviously being about mental health and suicide prevention. I mean, talk us from the start when you, obviously, you talk about coming from a racially charged and dysfunctional childhood. Like, let's start from there. Yeah, so, you know, it's funny because a lot of people assume I'm a Hispanic or I'm Italian or just from the looks of me, they think that, but I'm African-American and I, you know, I don't look African-American by most people, but I grew up in a very um, African-American environment. I grew up in East LA, Culver City, Los Angeles, California, and I grew up in Hollywood. So I was part of the entertainment industry. My cousin was a famous rapper. My uh, family grew up with Motown and Red Fox, if you guys know who he is, and Lou Rawls and Marvin Gaye used to come around my house and all these people were part of my, my psyche. And I saw the back end of entertainment. I saw the things that happened that weren't on stage, right? So the partying, the drinking, the drugs, the, I would say just the looseness, if you will, from the sexuality that took place since I was around seven years old, um, even before that. But um, I got involved in, in Hollywood, got a record deal. You know, I was in magazines before social media. There was these magazines that they were nationwide and they had all the teen idols and all the music artists and you could fan mail and Polaroid photos. And so I had all that in me. And then um, I wrote a book about the story of my father pulling a shotgun on me. Uh, He was an alcoholic and he died of cancer when I was 18. But when I was uh, 15 and a half, almost 16, he had pulled a shotgun on me. And literally, 
one said he was going to shoot me. He was drunk and he, he had this double barrel sawed off shotgun in my face, at least not even a foot from me holding it like this because it was sawed off and with venom in his eyes wanting to shoot me. And so I wrote a story about that and how I was really depressed after that, that moment. And I wanted to shoot myself. I wanted him to find me dead and something supernatural happened that literally stopped me from pulling the trigger. Um, and it, this, it happened again when I was after I got married to another supernatural event, same depression, same struggles where I was just wanted to find myself dead. And I was depressed through so many things. But that put me in a trajectory where I was looking to be liked and looking to be loved. And so entertainment just fell in my lap that way. And it felt good. Um, but I was missing something. I was always depressed. I was literally around Prince, Madonna, Janet Jackson, all these people working with these people. But I was literally so depressed and I had everything you could ever want. I mean, I literally remember not getting to the beach one weekend because I couldn't decide which car I wanted to take or if I wanted to take a motorcycle. So I would drive halfway there, go back and I take the Jeep. Nah, I take the Corvette. Then I take the motorcycle. And that was miserable because I had, I didn't work for it. It just came in my lap. And so I, uh, I had to really start digging deep and figure out what was going on with me. And I found a way to do that, which was really not study and try to fix me, which was ironic. I didn't try to fix me at all. I really started focusing on human nature. And that way I knew it wasn't just me, it's human behaviors. And I started studying human behaviors after going through another bout of depression and struggles. And that was it. So that's my life in a nutshell. Wow. <laughs> and what you talk about, there, like there seems to be a huge common denominator when it comes to people who seemingly on the outside have everything and you even speak about it there like you had everything and on the outside you had no right to feel like that because you did have everything that people often they see success and they see cars and they see this ultimate life I mean you're saying there you was hanging around with the likes of Prince and Madonna and like I suppose in a, in a nutshell there you could say they probably had their struggles as well. We don't see it and it's often a filtered life and attesting to the campaign is why I wanted to disrupt this notion of social media and these highlight reels because we don't know and I've spoken to a lot of people through this campaign who are very successful within the entertainment or corporate world and it's the same thing, isn't it? So what really made you from, from going through there, how did you kind of in a sense filter through the noise to know that you needed to make a change yourself? You know, it's a great question because a lot of people um, I asked that, ask that question in a different way. But, you know, one of my roommates, a guy I grew up with was Lenny Kravitz, and he grew up in L.A. with me. We were best friends. And he and I had, uh, I would say, had a dysfunctional family life, but his was a little more, he was, it was better because his mom was Roxy Roker. They had a nice house. So I would stay at his house all the time. But he had a dysfunctional relationship with his father. I, I wouldn't call it dysfunctional because he, I, I really don't know, but they weren't that close, right? And I could see that. The thing that happens with most of us, we have this thing where we're trying to be something based off of what we assume people think of us. And the first people we think, think of us is our parents. And so if we have any dysfunction with our parents or some kind of, I call it, it's called cognitive dissonance in our brain where we are being told how great we are in one area, but we feel like the people closest to us don't feel that way. So we start feeling it can't be true. That creates a disruption and creates that creates the depression. We start struggling with this feeling of, well, everybody's telling me I'm 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 great, but the people that know me the best tell me I'm a loser. Or my my father looked at me and says he wants to shoot me. So you see how, you know, it it, it creates a depression. So 
that's the common denominator, no matter what industry you're in, you can be a successful business owner. I work with some executives who are completely in dismay emotionally because they have been working their butt off. They went to college because their parents thought it'd be the best thing for them. They became successful, but they never really did anything they wanted to do. They're miserable at what they do, but they're successful. So I would say it's the concept of trying to please those that you look up to and admire who your parents and people that raised you, whether parents or not, are the people that you find that should be your tribal safety net that aren't. And all of us have some dysfunction growing up because no one's perfect and our parents aren't perfect. So we all have something that rubs against us, even though we're being told everywhere how great it is and how great you can be. There's something, that little whisper in your, in your head that's always twisting, trying to stop you from feeling good because you're not worthy of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. One question I do want to ask you is to say that you grew up surrounded by, should I say, fame and, and, and people of influential status is it almost a sense of a, a bubble? So for anybody from the outside looking in who thinks they would love to be a part of that, that kind of scene, that circle, what, if anything, could you give advice to people from the outside looking in? What advice could you give that it's, it, it's kind of, in a sense, not all it's made out to be, like that we think it is? Yeah, I would tell you that entertainment, and I, I have a lot of entertainer friends. I'm not putting it down. Entertainment is about expression, right? Artists are all, 70% of our culture is creative, right brain thinkers. That means we love to create, have ideas. Being able to do that is a gift. At the same time, if you're not controlling the, the onset of that, like what that expression can lead to, because if you express yourself 24-7, you really aren't checking yourself and i say what people think they think the the moment is life and there's no such thing as smiling all day long it becomes hard your muscles get tired you get a cramp you know there's no such thing as just a happy life and i think people think if i get to that point where i have everyone loving me i'm going to be happy and it's exactly the opposite and there is a bubble and there are circles there's about seven different rings in the entertainment there are you know, from Hollywood being a talent agent, you know, um, people would fly in from all over the world to become famous in Hollywood. If you know no one, there are vultures out there. And I would say wolves who are looking for that because they're creative and eccentric people. And so they utilize people's naivete to use to live their eccentric thoughts, if that makes sense. I'm using code here, but it's very interesting how it is. So I would say it's nothing as it seems. And just so you know, the word entertainment itself is a Greek word. It comes from Greek meaning amuse means an amuse in Greek means no thought. So it's about getting people to not think. It's just getting people to absorb whatever they're being shown. And so entertainment is about a ruse really is. And so every level of entertainment is a ruse. So every word, every tweet, Every moment is thought out and considered the impact. And then what should we do to redirect or embrace what just happened? And that's, that's not real. That's not real life. Reality shows, when the first one came out on MTV, uh, Real World, um, I remember it was, I was at one of the sets and we were casting for it. And it was one of those weird things where they're like, well, um, we want you to act this way. And then they acted that way. And they said, you know, that's not good enough. We want, I want you to think about this person, you know, sleeping with your boyfriend. I want, no, you're not acting mad enough. We need you to act more. But it's called real world. So it wasn't real world. It was all acting. And so everything is acting, if that makes sense. Even the real world shows are acting. Yeah. I, when I was recently in LA, I actually got invited to an event through a friend. 
and it was an out of season event and it was like I think it was almost called like casting for casting directors so it was essentially the top shows of those casting directors where I met some of the, the main stars should I say of the show and then all the rest of the audience were were casting agents and they was talking about the ways in which to do it and everybody there was like it, it's almost a sense of why are we listening to other casting directors when that's our role but me I found it so interesting <laughs> I was sat there going wow like it just oh it blows your mind but I always pay attention to the little details of so there's so many people who want to make it in the entertainment industry and they're missing little pieces of golden nuggets that casting agents look for in people when they're researching and 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 to be contacted but Back to you, I would say you're very openly spoken about your struggles and about mental health, what you've gone through. And I'm so grateful you're a part of the campaign for all you do with it. And what I wanted to show is that everybody a part of the campaign obviously has gone through adversity and very openly spoken about it. But you also speak about almost taking a hiatus out of that industry. So what was the turning point that made you do that? And you also spoke of another moment that you, you came close to taking your life. Can you speak about that? Yeah, you know, I got, I got out of the industry. It's weird because I stayed in, I got out of entertainment as a talent agent and got into kickboxing because I was a kickboxer as a kid. I got my butt, I don't know if I can stay ass kicked all day long in East LA. And um, it was my first fight club was my dad. He, you know, I came home one day and my, 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 my mouth was just up to here and I was closed and he was like enough. And he, I thought he was going to go protect me and go, he knocked on this guy's door and this is the guy that kicked my ass basically and he goes look i'm tired of you guys fighting let's just do one more fight let's get everybody in around circle around let's have one more kickboxing fight just fight it out one last time and i'm like that's not protecting me dad i'm already beat down but <laughs> got my butt get twice in one day right but it was um after the time he pulled the gun on me i decided i'm not gonna let my ass get kicked anymore i had to do something different so i literally reinvented myself and this is a very important part that's in the book that i wrote i, it, I literally changed my name my re legal name is not julian i renamed myself and i reinvented who i wanted to be i had an image of who i wanted to be mm -hmm. and one of them was i wanted to be i wanted to be able to fight so i took a I took kickboxing and I started kickboxing, but I didn't tell anybody. I kept it to myself because I didn't want to be ridiculed. I just, it was a secret. But I fought in the ring. I, I competed. And it was really a lot of fun. It challenged me to be confident in myself and do things that I was afraid of and lean into that fear. So what happened was um, I was burnt out with entertainment. I told you I wasn't happy. Something was wrong. I, I couldn't figure it out. I think because I was just abusing my luxuries and things and I didn't really understand it but the girl I was dating she was an aerobic instructor and she had introduced me to Billy Blank and I helped him with some boxing moves which I should have signed a contract because I would have made a lot of money on Tybo but what happened was she said hey there's a gym they're looking for you know why don't you go take a boxing class she used to kickbox you might like it so I went to the class and the guy didn't the guy that was supposed to teach was um um forgot his name, but he was a heavyweight champion, Mike Weaver. That was his name in LA. And um, he didn't show up. And so I ended up teaching the class. Dude, that just changed my world. I ended up teaching boxing. I ended up developing a program. I ended up hiring uh, people all over LA. I had gyms all over California. I had a business. I literally gave up talent and went into teaching but I ended up working with celebrities again as a kickboxing coach you know Bill Bellamy and you know a bunch of other people and what happened was uh, I met a girl in my class and we got married and this is where it gets crazy because we went to marriage counseling because you know I wanted to marry her and I was 
we had to get some counseling. I'd never had counseling before. And let's be real, Glenn, I had never met a, a guy outside of entertainment, really. I mean, I met people, but I'm talking about people that had eight to five jobs or financial planners, corporate guys. I didn't know those guys. I grew up in Hollywood. This church was nothing but guys like that. They mowed lawn when in khakis. They didn't have understanding of fitness. They just were business guys. And so they saw what I did and they told me that it was not a, 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 a biblical thing to do as a married man to be in that industry. Okay, I can get rid of the boxing business. I was making six figures plus and I got into financial planning and that almost killed me. Um, I lost all my friends. I'm wearing suits. I'm talking about insurance. I was miserable. My wife and I were married, kid on the way. I I wanted to I just wanted to die and I felt that feeling again and this is where it gets really weird and no one I hate to, I don't want people to think I'm religious because I'm not but I do believe there's a higher power and whatever God you believe in that God will show Himself to you and um, I had that same shotgun my father put to my head when I was 15 and a half I still have it and that shotgun was in the house and my wife and I had this huge fight and I put the shotgun to the floor and had the barrel right here. And I said, I just want this girl to find me dead. I was so mad. I wanted her to find me and feel guilty. And I, the TV was on. I don't know about you, but in those days, I used to have the TV on for noise. Have you ever done that? You go home and just turn the TV on. TV was on for noise. I didn't pay attention to what was on, but it was this TV show. And I don't, I'm not going to say the name because it might not be in your, in your country, but it was a show where they start praying out loud for people mm-hmm. anywhere. It can be anywhere. Who is ever watching? The TV set, not in the audience. And the lady closes her eyes and she says, there's somebody named Julian who is struggling and looking for help. He's feeling so alone. Julian, you're not alone. There is a plan for you. Julian, there is a plan for you. Just know God loves you. And I'm like, what? And I just dropped the gun. I'm like, what? Is she talking to me? I mean, Julian is not a common name in the States. So I was feeling kind of weird. And, um, I ordered that VHS tape. I still have it. Um, it's just one of those things. And it stopped me from pulling the trigger because I was so irrational. And I, I can go through a list of irrational things I did that means I, yeah, I shouldn't be here. But, you know, I was a very rational person at the time. But week after that, I met Jim Rohn. And Jim Rohn, I don't know if you know who he is, but he was a person that was in the mind space. And he told me, he pointed me towards mind science, neuro-linguistic programming, Egyptian philosophy, Mesopotamia studies, world religions, and psychology. He says, study these things and study other people's biographies and learn who you are by learning about other people. Don't reflect on you so much because it turns you into a narcissist and you think the whole world revolves around you. But if you look at what other people experience and realize that you're them, you realize you're not crazy. You're just going through a journey. And he goes, go through your journey, learning about other people's journeys. And that's what I've been doing since then. That was 24 years ago, 24 years. I've been studying this about 24 years. And you still look young, man. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, hey, I take my vitamins. I drink water. I drink a lot of water. I don't drink anything else, by the way. <laughs> That's a healthy tip. We'll add the pictures on the end uh, when you're used to being the model and the kickboxing. I've seen the shape you. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, so, I was in shape, man. I worked out so much. <laughs> oh, but um, tell me about moving forward. Then, obviously, you went in the route of corporate, and now with your own program. I mean, tell us more about demo. Well, demo is like, you know, being in the music industry, 
I use demo. So kids used to give you a demo tape and say, hey, I want to be a celebrity. And you would take that song and you would take them to the studio and redo it. So demo is just another word for your triggers, like your issues, I call them, your triggers in your life, things that hurt you that you don't even realize hurt you. They're the, they're the persona you give off based off of your, here's the important, there's a persona you give off to other people based off of your interpretation of their interaction with you. It's very important to understand how you feel other people feel about you and how you react to that is what a demo is. And so I get people to realize you might react to this person the way you do or this job the way you do or the spouse the way you do because of something happened as a child. It's like, you know, it's this psychology going to your childhood triggers, but I use demo in that way. It's called determined emotional memory and it's output. So how it affects you because we repeat the same things as out of habit. So I try to break people's habits by redoing the demo. Just like I reinvented my, myself by changing my name, I had to write a letter to myself and kind of create a whole story and why those things happened to me from, and from sexual abuse to gang violence to you know, uh, family trials and being, uh, not having a family and being a, a Lasky kid and you know, my father. All those things, I had to come to grips with that and I had to redo how I saw that. And now I see it as a benefit. I have this thing and I get flack for this in states your struggle is your strength. I say that all the time because if you look at your struggle and say that struggle is really what made me, now how do I use that struggle to a benefit to somebody else? You realize your connection with other people is finding the common struggle <laughs> and that's really it. And then learning how to help others with theirs because you already empathize with it. And that's what I've, I've learned to do. So it's become a benefit. My father, I, I thank him for it. Uh, all the stuff I went through, I thank him for it. And because, and I, I find that I have strength because I, if I got through that, I can get through anything, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, attesting to all that and, and, and talking about kind of the social unrest today, what, what do you believe or feel is the driving force, uh, force to that? Well, that's a loaded question, man, because, I, you know, being an NLP and being a psychology, I, I would say if people read history, you realize that, you know, hysteria and mass uh, mobster mentality is a human trait and it's throughout history. It happens. Uh, at the same time, there's always a select few that can step beyond their emotion and look at the big picture. But again, it's select few. Not all of us do. Most of us are hypocritical to what we say. We say, don't judge me. At the same time, we're judging others, right? Most of us say, you're racist. At the same time, I'm hating you because you're racist, you white SLB. <laughs> so it's like, it's we, we're actually... Be, are what we scream about. So I think a lot of us scream for silence, if you will. Protesting is like screaming for silence. You, you become part of the problem if you don't do it in a way that makes sense. And so uh, what's happening is it's a lot of built up emotion. And just like road rage, you don't second guess why you do it. You just do it. And the cortisol and the stress and what it does to the brain and how it shuts down the neocortex, the logical part of your brain, um, it shuts down. So you can't rationalize with people when they're emotional. There is a way to get people to calm down. And usually it has nothing to do with trying to convince them of anything. It's just allowing people to speak for a period of time and let the emotions subside because there's been studies showing you let people vent their emotions and don't try to stop them. Literally empathize. Dang, you know what? I can see why you feel that way. Wow, let me take that in and, you know, and not apologize for it. But let me just take it in and let me hear you get it out. Let's, it changes the emotion. So it drops the cortisol by 22 plus percent. So I think a lot of it is people don't feel heard. 
And so if I'm not going to feel hurt, I'm going to just forget about what makes sense and what's rational and just make sure I'm hurt some kind of way. And that's really what I feel is going on. Not to get political, but I mean, it, you see it all the time. I mean, it, you know, in arguments, you can be fighting with somebody and it's really a tit for tat because you're not really trying to hurt the other person. You're just trying to wait to see your point to, so you can say what you want to say. And that's kind of what's happening. Yeah. And you, and you've said you've, you're the author of a, a few books. Where can people find your books? Well, I have a book. You can find mine. Um, I can send it to you. Um, I have one. I'm part of a collective group of authors. We talked about a book of resilience, like what one thing that we overcame that changed everything for us, I guess, that was kind of the whole concept. And so my, my story with my dad was that one story. Um, I can send it to you. They can go to my, you know, pivot the change as pivot, the number two change.com or juliansato.com. And, but I have another book coming out, which is called interview interview with self. It's kind of like a, if you're going to a job interview, it talks about your story and your core and your triggers and who you are personally. And it's using like an interview as a way to kind of determine that. So it's kind of using corporate, to tell my story and like how you can understand your own story through some of my stories and some biographies and some Greek philosophers and stuff like that. And some other combinations of world religions and how that all combines. It's not out yet though. So I'm still, <laughs> still working on that. I, I I'm, I'm a perfectionist on that. It's really, you know, interesting. I admire people to write books because I'm giving away a lot of information and you do feel a little vulnerable about that, you know, and I have some people's stories in there that are still famous and I have to make sure that they're okay with some of the things I'm going to say. And I mean, that's, that's one of the whole things. And it, again, when it comes towards the campaign, I, I'm so grateful that people have shown that vulnerability and, and done that. But coming back to yourself, when you started openly sharing your story, was it a sense of elation when you got it off your chest and felt a lot better or did it take you a while to actually open your story? And what was the response? I would say it took me a while because I, I come from a space where, you know, again, my demo is I've always, since I was a kid, I've been the protector. So to put this in perspective. I grew up a Lasky kid. I started taking care of my mom at age seven. You know, I, I felt like I was a man of the house. And so I've always been a person of a, a protector. I, my wife, she was always wanted to be protected. So we were a perfect match when we first met. But I've always masked my story with sharing and teaching. So it was really hard. The first time I opened up where I wasn't teaching something, I broke down and cried in front of the whole audience because it was a, it was a time where it was, a, it was an inner circle meeting of 50 plus people, exec, and that execs, very successful influencers. And it was people you know on, on YouTube now, they're well known who we all were sitting saying, let's just, let's, who are you? And they, no lessons, just who are you? And I broke down like a freaky baby, dude, because I had never done that. So it, it's easy to talk about my story as long as I keep giving you nuggets of information because it keeps me on that teaching mode. But yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting thing, you know, and you want your story to become a, a scar, not a wound. If it's still bleeding out, meaning you still are hurting from it, um, you know, that you still have more to work on. If you can talk about it and it's just like a scar. Yeah, I got a scar here. This is what happened. I don't bleed anymore, but it's there. I can show it to you. That's fine, you know, but when you, and I still had some work to do and I didn't realize that until that, that was about literally, um, I've been here in Dallas for seven years. That was about five years ago. So yeah. And I'm, I feel much better now. So I purged it. That's good. And I, I do just want to make a, a quick disclaimer that the imperfectly perfect campaign is creating awareness and not a substitute for professional advice. But I do often ask people that come on and openly speak about their story. What advice for 
or any would you give to anybody that may be listening to this podcast that thinks that they've tried everything um, or, or just doesn't know how to keep moving forward and seeking additional or different kinds of advice? Because as we know, we can go to Google, we can type in mental health and there's a barrage of information. So from a personal perspective, what kind of advice would you give to anybody that may be listening to your story and resonating with it? Thank you for asking. And I must say to your, like you said, I am not a doctor. I'm an NLP practitioner and behavioral coach. Um, but I've, I've self healed. And I, I would tell you that um, my story is no different than m most others. I have a friend from Turkey who was, his house was bombed several times. He saw family members killed right in front of him. He's perfectly fine. And uh, he's come to grips, but he, did exactly what I do. And I would say, this is what I find that's unique and I think would help anybody. The challenge we're faced with, we are so inner focused that our own inner focus is our weakness. That becomes the problem. We're, 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 you know, the word narcissist is not a bad word. We've made it a bad word in our society, but what it just represents is that we're just focusing on us. The best way to heal yourself is really not to focus on you, but focus on everybody else. It literally is helping others and literally learning about the science of who you are as an individual human being. We're the only creature on the planet that can live by choice. So choose to do something different. Don't try to fix you. Focus on learning about you. And that fixes everything because it distracts. It takes away the problem. And the challenge we're faced with is like Sadhguru, who is a speaker and known in India. He's a famous like author. He goes, you know, a lot of people are depressed because they have too much time in their hands <laughs> to think about how depressed they are. And I think that's part of the, the struggle we're faced with. Our society now has gotten so comfortable with being comfortable doing nothing that all we have is time to think about how bored we are. And I would say getting involved with imperfectly perfect, doing things that are beyond like comfort zones for yourself, but are giving to others is the number one best way to heal yourself. And I'm not saying necessarily go do something you don't want to do, but I'm going to just give you one last story. I know there's a reason for my life. That prayer that lady said to me that one time when I had that shotgun to my head, whoever that woman is, I don't know her, but she was on TV saying there's this guy named Julian. Well, a year, two years ago, before I started Pivot the Change, before I started coaching and consulting, I was working for a company and things got rough and I had to make a decision to leave the company. I had no job to go to. I had to make a decision. I left. And I was depressed. I found myself like hyperventilating, like what am I going to provide my family? And Glenn, I went back to boxing. I took a tour of this gym down the street from my house and they had boxing bags hanging there. And I go, Hey, I used to be a kickboxer. And they go, would you teach please? We need a teacher. And I'm like, I, that was 20 years ago. I haven't taught like, please, we'll give you free membership. And I'm like, you know, I'll teach one class. It'll be fun. Right. So I went and started teaching a class. Dude, the class grew. I had a huge class. Wow. Then they said, would you have some, would you literally do some private lessons? I'm like, you're not paying me enough, dude. I, I'm a coach. You know, I'm an executive. But, you know, I said, well, Matt, I'll do it for fun. I can't. What's, what's going to hurt? Yeah. This is why I say it's important you give. I did it. And the girl that I started coaching or training, she was a high school kid. She came in and I could tell something was wrong with her. She was seemed a little agitated, but she started working with me. And being an NLP practitioner, I was paying attention to so many different things I'm not going to go into. But I just stopped and I said, hey, um, talk to me tell me what's happening in your head right now. What are you thinking? And I just stopped. And she starts crying profusely, Glenn, for literally 15 minutes. And she looked at me and she goes, 
I just came here because I don't want my mother to keep bugging me, but I'm planning on killing myself tonight, but I don't want her to know. This is why I'm seeing you. And I was like, I'm so glad you told me that. That explains everything. I just wanted to make sure I understood. So talk to me. Tell me more. That's all I said. I said, reality is I won't ever talk to your mother again and I'll never see you again. So tell me what's going on. And she started sharing with me. Now, will that reason me being in this world for that reason, for that girl? Who knows? Could it be meeting you? Who knows? Could it be this podcast? Who knows? But when you give yourself and you realize you could be talking to one person that's going to make, that's going to change the world, you really start thinking that you're smaller and everybody else is bigger versus you're big and everybody else is small. And that's the difference in what I did. And I think that would work for a lot of people if they did it. And by the way, she's better now. My, my wife counselor, she got professional help. She's doing great. And we're still friends today. And she would tell you if she was on this podcast right now, she was dead set on doing it. That's why she took the class with me or private because she didn't want anybody to know. And she had a, a, a grip of pills and a bottle that she was just going to take and go to sleep. And that's what she was going to do. But see, thank you for sharing that. And what I think is so beautiful in the sharing of that is that a lot of people, including myself through this campaign or whatever, who have gone through severe adversity, whatever story it is, their, their personal struggles is that seemingly I think when we go to spirituality and I'm not fully getting into it, but knowing that we're here for a reason is sometimes if we pay attention to it, that intuitive feeling, I've started picking up on a lot of things when I notice when somebody's not being their true self. And for example, one of my stories is I, I set a group up, the boys group, and uh, just several friends that have been brought together. And I just noticed straight away. And one of the guys on there was actually doing a podcast with someone else. And he said, unbeknownst to Glenn, the day that he reached out to me, I was considering taking my life. And there was just something that connected us at that moment. And Robert Mack, who's, who's on the campaign, who um, we've got to get you connected with, he said the same thing. He was walking to an event down in Hollywood Boulevard and a young guy was stood at the side with him at the, at the sidewalk with his father, asked him where he was going, noticed a scar on his arm, asked him about it. And he was like, that there is where I was about to take my life. And it's a reminder to me. And at that moment, the, the kid, 17, 18, I can't remember the age, sorry, but um, started crying and said he was going to take his life. His father had no idea. Yeah. But those, those meetings, it, it, it's almost, if you pay attention to those intuitive little moments that we're brought together across someone's path at those certain times, it's, it's powerful and it's beautiful. So thanks for sharing. No worries. And just, just a quick note is that, you know, I think not to say it's all wrong, but I think we literally subconsciously believing that life's not, so have, not supposed to have any pains and life is pain and joy. It's both. It's not one or the other. And knowing how to view your pain is one of the keys to understanding how to enjoy the, the good parts as well, you know? So don't beat yourself up when you're having pain and don't feel like there's something wrong with you because you had something bad happen to you or you're struggling with something. It's part of the existence of life. We're the only creature on the planet that can actually contemplate our pain. It's a gift to know why you're hurting and you and just live through it because you never know how this is going to relate to somebody else to your point. And that's the whole gift that we have. And that's, that's so, so powerful about being alive today is that we can connect. I, you're in Australia right now, right? <laughs> you're in, 
you're on the other side of the planet. It's it's tomorrow where you are. <laughs> so it's like I'm speaking to somebody across the planet about you know personal things, dude. That is an amazing thing. It's unfathomable the the power that we have and just the ability to interact as humans. And I think it's amazing. So um, I think you're doing a great thing. I hope people understand that, you know, what you're doing, you're a catalyst to people starting to understand the power of that connection and not be the facade or the commercial, but be the genuine you. And just, you know, that is the best selling pitch to anybody. And you're really not selling anything. You're just connecting, you know, and it's really connecting with people using a true and perfectly perfect being because you can always imagine a perfect circle, but you can never draw one. So that means reality is never perfect. So just put that in perspective. Exactly. Well, I want to thank you for being a part of the campaign. And obviously, pretty much as I say, being a mentor to myself, I learned so much each time I talk to you. Um, but what, what's next for yourself? Like what have you got coming up? Or obviously, you're still going through your, uh, your pandemic. Are you easing up on that and getting back to normality? Yeah, you know, my life is changing, dude. I, I'm, I'm going into another world. I still, you know, I coach people and I, you know, I work with you and I work with people that I care for that have come into my life that I feel I have some value to add to them. But yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of different things. One of them is finishing my book and then I'm, you know, doing sales again. I'm back and doing sales and working with a company and I'm having a good time doing that because I'm connecting and I'm being genuine to me versus being, um, you know, ingenuine. My thing is I love people. I love listening to people and watching people and sharing and learning. And, um, you know, I observe people since I was a kid, you know, walking East LA home, I had to observe people's behaviors, not their words. And so I love the, the things I'm doing now and I'm just going to keep pushing forward. I'm moving to Colorado where we're supposed to be moving to Denver. Um, that's the next step, um, moving out of Dallas. And so my kids are now going to college. One's in college. One's a musician. You know, Jordan, he's a musician. Um, he just dropped his album and, you know, he battled with depression and suicide. He actually tried to take his life once and, you know, but it was a blessing in disguise because he now knows he doesn't want to take his life and we've gotten closer through it. Um, so yeah, it's been, you know, my journey is who knows, I'm just going to do it with a smile and push, lean into it when it's tough and embrace it when it's not. Well, yeah, you're an incredible human being, mate. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud to know you and get to know you, but, um, for anybody listening to the campaign guys to find out more about the imperfectly perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectly perfect campaign to hear this episode or any future episodes, simply go to Spotify or iHeartRadio find the Imperfectly Perfect podcast and you'll be able to download, subscribe and listen to more of these incredible advocates towards mental health. All right, guys, until next episode, enjoy yourself, take care and thank you again to Julian. I know it's quite late over in the US now, so um, just want to say thank you for your time. Hey, thank you, Glenn. Good morning to you, I guess, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right, buddy. Have a good day, mate. You too. To find out more about the Imperfectly Perfect campaign and how you can get involved, simply head to our official website at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org or email us today at info at imperfectlyperfectcampaign.org to speak to one of the team. The Imperfectly Perfect campaign is creating awareness and is not a substitute for professional advice. Should you need help, please refer to your nearest crisis number.